If you've recently started a business, why take away time from what you're good at, only to focus on difficult, pesky HR problems? Jumpstart HR LLC offers a better solution. Jumpstart HR provides HR outsourcing support to U.S.-based small businesses and startups and was recently ranked among the top 10 HR outsourcing firms in the country, according to businessnewsdaily.com. From recruitment to employee handbooks to legal compliance, Jumpstart HR helps you get peace of mind about the people in your business. Visit jumpstart-hr.com for more information or follow on Twitter at jumpstarthr. Jumpstart HR, let's build a better business together. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Business, Life, and Coffee Show. I am joined by Mike Johnson, the Chief Executive Officer of the Clear Law Institute. Uh, and Mike is a speaker at the 2016 Sherm Conference, and he's leading a mega session on detecting lies and deception, practical skills for HR professionals. Uh, so we're going to spend some time today talking about his session, um, his background, and how he how he's navigated through the world of uh, investigations and and detecting liars and really, really want to just learn some more about uh, employee investigations and really just conducting your own uh, assessments of whether or not somebody's lying. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Joy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start off with the basics. Uh, w- what is your background in, in litigation and investigation? Sure. Um, as far as the litigation and, and investigations, um, in the late 1990s, I was an attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice in its Civil Rights Division. So I was investigating and litigating cases of workplace harassment and workplace discrimination against employers around the country. And since leaving the Department of Justice in 2000, as part of my practice, I continue to conduct investigations on behalf of employers of alleged workplace misconduct. Okay. All right. And um, so you worked at the DOJ as a senior trial attorney. Um, what are some of the things you've learned about human behavior while working in that, in that capacity? And what was that experience like? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think, so when I was at DOJ, um, I, I brought one of DOJ's first, what was called pattern of practice, sort of a class action style sexual harassment case. And this was a case against the police department and it involved allegations of sexual harassment and, and the allegations included everything from sexual comments to pornography in the workplace up to allegations of sexual assault of a citizen and, and actually are, unfortunately, a rape of an employee. Wow. And so as I investigated the case and then ultimately brought litigation, um, brought a case against the employer, I was really interested in, in these, as you could imagine, so sexual harassment cases are oftentimes he said, she said cases where it's one person's word against the other. And so I was really interested in the way that people make decisions about who they believe in those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, like what cues are they relying on to make the conclusion that she's lying or she's telling the truth. Um, and also I was interested in the way that employers often go about investigating these claims and sort of the beliefs they have about what's the best way to interview witnesses, um, to interview the complainant, to interview the accused. And, you know, basically what I found um, both in my you know, work in, at DOJ and as my work um, investigating claims on behalf of em- employers now 
is that, and then also providing training for organizations around the country, is that many people have just inaccurate beliefs um, about how you best conduct an investigation and how you determine who's telling the truth and, and who's lying. And that those beliefs are really not based in, in science. And in fact, like what the scientific researchers have found is often quite different than what people do in practice. Okay, and you, you mentioned that there are inaccurate beliefs that uh, go against science. Could you could you dive a little bit more into that and, and sort of uh, share with our audience what, what your findings have been? Sure. I, I think, you know, one, oftentimes, like in a, in a workplace investigation, for example, people who have been asked to do the investigation, they often go into the investigation um, with scripted questions. So they have a script of questions, and they often are trying to get a gut instinct on do they believe the person or do they not believe the person. And so those beliefs are often based on inaccurate stereotypes about how liars behave. And so, for example, like oftentimes people think that liars are less likely to look you in the eye. Like they're more mm -hmm. likely to avert their gaze or that liars are more fidgety than truth-tellers. But it turns out that researchers have not found that to be the case. And there's a few reasons why that's not the case. So, so let's take um, not looking you in the eye. So there's several reasons why someone may be telling the truth, but not looking you in the, in the eye. So the person may be from a culture where it's a sign of disrespect to look you in the eye. The person just may be a, a shy person and just may be very nervous about being interviewed about this alleged workplace misconduct. So the person may be telling the truth, but nevertheless not looking in the eye. And at the same time, someone who's guilty and is in fact lying, they may not want to look you in the eye, but they're going to make a concerted effort to look you in the eye. And likewise, they're going to make a concerted effort to not be fidgety or not reveal other signs of nervousness because they've heard the stereotype that liars are more likely to be fidgety or exhibit signs of nervousness. So, you know, what researchers have found is that in judging who's telling the truth and who's lying, oftentimes people rely on these stereotypical beliefs that people with nervous demeanors are more likely to be lying. Um, but that's, the research just has not, uh, shown that to be the case yeah and i think we get that from movies and and crime tv where you know you see the attorney or the the uh prosecutor go you know if he if he's looking up into the left he's telling the truth or if he's looking up and uh, and looking to the right he he's lying um and I, and and i think we sort of we can we can underestimate the uh the the negative aspect of getting these investigations wrong because Either wrongful people can be accused, or uh, or uh, rather um, con convicted of, of of a crime to to a degree, or uh, we can let the wrong person go. Um, so this information is is very very critical. Yeah, and it's interesting, like the example that you just gave about looking up into the left and looking up into the right. And so that's one. And I I do training you know, all over the world, and and. Oftentimes, people ask me about that specific example. Uh -huh. 
And so that's an example. That's from something called neurolinguistic programming. And the fault behind NLP as it relates to deception is that if people are telling the truth, they tend to look up into the left, and if they're lying, they tend to look up into the right. And I remember when I first heard about this back when I was in, at DOJ in the 90s, and I thought, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. Now, I never used it in any of my cases, um, mainly because I couldn't remember, is it the left or is it the right? <laughs> and is it my left? Is it their left? Right? Um, and that could, go, never, that could go incredibly bad if you got that wrong. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I'm glad I never used it at all, because mm -hmm. now there's been lots of research that has shown there's absolutely nothing to that. There was an interesting study out of the uh, University of British Columbia where what they did was they looked at videos of people making public pleas for the safe return of missing relatives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone goes missing and the relative gets up on stage at a press conference and you know, says, please you know, bring Bobby back, right? Well, in some of the cases, the person making this plea had actually killed the relative, right? Mm -hmm. So they get videos from all over the world of people making these public pleas uh, for the safe return of missing relatives. And for the ones that they can clearly identify, you know, who's the actual murderer, so is the person making the plea, are they telling the truth, are they lying, um, they then looked and, and tried to determine, was there, was, were truth-tellers more likely to look up to the left, were liars more likely to look up to the right, and they didn't find any evidence for that. And there's been other studies, including some laboratory studies, that have shown that to be the case. But But that's a good example of how I've seen people from HR investigators to law enforcement officers to attorneys in my seminars sort of shout out that as an example of how they tell someone's telling the truth and if they're lying. And, and they're very confident in that belief. Hmm. So your, your session, your sure mega session on, on detecting lies and deception, uh, practical skills for HR professionals, I imagine there's going to be a, a, an element of uh, myth busting uh, around this topic, um, but but specifically, what will attendees learn from from the session? Yeah, so what I like to do, and what I'll do at the Sherm conference is, one, I'll show some videos of people being interviewed, and I'll ask people to determine is this person telling the truth or are they lying, and, and why do you think that? And so, you know, invariably people will, will shout out um, inaccurate cues, be it to deception or, or truthfulness. And so then we'll discuss, like, what are the errors that people make when trying to detect deception or truthfulness in interviews. And then we'll talk about what researchers have found. So taking, you know, some of the, uh, the cues um, that may be myth and comparing those to what researchers in fact have found. And, and the overall theme of the session will be that despite what you may have heard um, in the, the popular press or on TV or, or movies, um, trying to determine if someone is lying based on their demeanor or their body language is not a great way to go about it. It's much more important to listen to the nuances of what they say and linguistic strategies that people use to be deceptive as opposed to trying to tell someone's lying because of their body language. Hmm. Now, I've, I've heard uh, something, and uh, hopefully you can give me some guidance on if this is right or wrong, but, uh, and this may be another myth, 
but I was I was watching a video and uh, it was an inform- very informative and they and they pretty much said if you if a person is talking to you and they're telling the truth, then um, they would be able to uh, recount not only the details of what happened, uh, but sort of some of the experiences uh, that that were associated with that. So as an example, um, a person was asked, "Okay, tell me about a concert that you went to. Matter of fact, I think it was a TED talk. Uh, Yeah, it was a TED talk. So uh, they said, tell me about a concert that you went to. Um, And so the person said, you know, I went to the concert. It was fun. It started at this time. It ended at this time. And then they, the interviewer dug a little deeper and said, okay, well, if I were attending that concert, what would I hear or what would I smell? Uh, and so I guess the point was, if, if you are telling the truth, you'll be able to readily deliver those sort of uh, ideas. Um, and if not, then odds are you, you weren't there or you're being deceptive or something like that. Ha- have you come across research uh like that yeah there there has been some research um to suggest that people who are telling the truth that they are more able to in in describing you know what they experience to provide sensorial details Mm -hmm. like you know what did you hear what did you smell that kind of thing um you know overall i mean the research probably one of the most consistent findings in deception research is that, yes, when asked to tell a story about what they experienced what, or what happened to them, truth-tellers provide a lot more details than liars, which makes sense, right? So if mm-hmm. I was actually at the concert, then I can just rely on my memory of what I experienced, and if I'm asked, tell me everything that happened at the conference, give me as, as much detail as, as, as possible, then I can provide lots of detail because I actually experienced the event. If I wasn't at the conference, if instead I was, uh, you know, robbing a bank or somewhere else other than being at the conference, I mean, being at the concert, then I would have to invent that story of being at the concert. I would have to invent details to make that story flow. I'd have to memorize those details and then I have to sit down with you and tell you that story. Um, and, and keeping in mind that like any detail that I introduce is dangerous because mm-hmm. any detail I introduce is a detail I may later forget if I'm questioned about it again. Also, any detail I introduce is a detail that you may have evidence to contradict that detail. So on average, liars tend to tell their stories in a very bare-bones manner. You know, I did this and I did that. Um, and then when you go back and you ask them to elaborate or you ask for sensorial details, they're less likely to be able to give those than people who actually experienced the event. Very fascinating. And I think that's a practical tip that that our audience can take away. Uh, we're, we're not going to, full disclaimer, that's not going to be 100% accurate. So <laughs> don't, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's one thing to, to be clear is like in, in any of the cues, um, there's no such thing as Pinocchio's nose. Okay. So, see, the great thing about Pinocchio's nose in the story was not only that it, that it grew when he was lying, but that it did not grow when he was telling the truth. So even cues that, on average, liars are more likely to exhibit, or truth-tellers are more likely to exhibit, sometimes 
you know, a liar may not exhibit it, or a truth teller may exhibit it. So, for example, um, you know, in, in the example I just gave, if a person in telling a story does not give you lots of details, it is suspicious, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're lying. Right? We're going to probe, we're going to look for more, um, we're going to ask lots of follow-up questions, mm -hmm. and we're going to look for a lot of different, uh, look at the story from a lot of different angles to try to determine do we think they're telling the truth or, or do we think they're lying. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that if the uh, accused has also had any form of coaching by an attorney, they, they might suggest to keep keep the details to a minimum. Uh, it could be. I mean, frankly, if the attorney's smart, then, well, I guess if the attorney knew the person was suspected <laughs> that their client was lying, then, then yeah. Um, <laughs> although there may be some ethical issues involved with that. Um, but... But yeah, it's 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 uh, there's a lot of interesting you know research out there on on details and yeah. and other cues. Yeah. So uh, let's let's go back to the uh, employee investigation component of it. And so, could you tell me the components of a successful internal employee investigation? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, I'll just kind of point out some of the mistakes that I see companies making. Um, First and foremost is assigning people to do investigations that have not received training on actually how to do an investigation. And it's amazing to me, given the high-stakes nature of many misconduct investigations in the workplace, that they're often assigned to people who've never done an investigation or never received any training in it. And you know, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys are attacking the quality of employers' investigations and the qualifications of those people who conduct the investigations. And I've served as an expert witness in a couple of cases where my only job was to attack the quality of the investigation, and part of that was attacking the qualifications of the investigator. So I say first, it's having people who've not been trained, or they've been inaccurately trained. Like they've been trained to use these techniques that are more commonly associated with, with historically with law enforcement investigations, where they come in and ask a series of scripted questions, if they see signs of nervousness, that they think the person's being deceptive, and then they try to interrogate the person and try to, to get a confession out of them. Um, there's been a lot of uh, researchers that have called that method into question, and, and indeed there's many courts that are starting to call that into question as well. Um, so people who've not been trained or they've been inaccurately trained um, on how to best interview witnesses, how to best make credibility assessments and determine you know, who you think is, is telling the truth and, and who's lying and document why you think that. Um, and then finally, so the last aspect is you know, writing investigative reports. People you know, have not been trained in, in how to properly write those reports. Um, they can in include or not include things in the reports um, that can cause legal issues down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and so do you have any internal investigation don'ts that you'd like to share with our audience as well? I, I mean, I, I think the main thing is approach the questioning. Like, don't approach the questioning in an overly scripted manner. Like, while, while you should... Certainly, before the interview, jot down 
the questions and the, 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 at least the topics that you want to address, you should first use what we call the funnel method, like to just simply ask the person, tell me everything that happened, give me as much detail as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, then what? Then what? Just let the person talk without interrupting them and then ask them just to keep talking. Mm-hmm, then what? Then what? So let the person talk, right? Because if they're telling the truth, the more they talk, the more information we gather, um, if they're lying, the more they talk, the more likely it is that they're going to say something that contradicts other evidence that we have mm-hmm. or what others say. So we want them to talk as much as possible, commit to a story. We can then look for details to contradict that story. So I think the mistake that many investigators make is they prepare a list of very scripted questions. They go in and ask those questions one by one. And it, frankly, it makes it easy for the person who's being deceptive because they can provide yes, no, or very short answers to mm-hmm. these questions. And, and the investigator doesn't learn that much. And then the other don't, I would say, is uh, don't jump to a conclusion. You need to keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and see, what can happen is something called confirmation bias can set in. So if you're assigned to do an investigation, at some level you know you should try to keep an open mind throughout the whole process until the very end, and then you'll sit down and you'll carefully weigh the evidence on both sides. But in real life, your brain does not like to work that way. Right? When faced with a difficult question like, did Tom sexually harass Lisa?, your mind likes to jump to an initial conclusion, either that you believe Tom or that you believe Lisa. And the problem is once you jump to that conclusion, then any evidence, let's say that you jump to the conclusion that that Lisa's lying and that Tom is innocent, then any evidence that comes in that supports that, you'll tend to focus on that, whereas any evidence that comes in that suggests the opposite, you'll tend to discard that. So it can be difficult, and most people just assume that they're keeping an open mind when in fact they're not. You have to be constantly mm-hmm. testing your assumptions, constantly thinking about are there other explanations um, that I should be examining. These are great points, and I mean, I I can I can understand that I guess uh, that 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 neural bias where you you jump to that conclusion and then you try to work backwards to piece things together so that your your hypothesis is uh is correct which which is not, is not a, a great way to to do investigations mm-hmm. um now what about for novice investigators uh working at, at companies what is your suggestion with regard to uh having one investigator versus uh, a team of investigators is is one strategy better than the other or is it better to have one is it better to have one single person doing the investigation or maybe a, a team side by side where you have two people collaborating uh what are your what are your thoughts on on that that aspect of the investigation process if if resources permit there's a lot of advantages of having a second person in the room because the second person can focus on taking copious notes while I'm focusing on asking the questions. Um, if the witness later says, I never said that, now it's not just my word against the witnesses, it's mine and my colleague's word. 
if I get to the end of questioning and I'm not asked an important topic, I, I, I'm not, let's say I get to the end of questioning on a particular topic and I'm not asked an important question, my colleague can write on a piece of paper, you forgot to ask this question and slide that paper over to me. Now what I don't want my colleague doing is jumping in and asking that question. And the reason is because I may have had a strategic reason why I did not want to ask that particular question at that time. Mm -hmm. Great point. Now, likely I didn't have a strategy. I just forgot. Right? <laughs> so that's why having my colleague jot it down, pass me the note, is, is a good strategy. Yeah. So there, there's definitely a lot of advantages to having a second person in the room. I would not have a third person because once you have three people sitting across the table from a witness, the witness stops thinking, I'm just having a conversation the witness thinks, I'm testifying to a panel. And that's not the approach you want to take in these investigations. Okay, so so three's a crowd. Stay away from the three-part uh, investigative team. Well, yep. uh, Mike, this has been a great, great, very informative uh, interview. Probably one of my favorite ones that I've done on the podcast. Uh, where can our audience go to find more about you uh, and more about the Clear Law Institute. Sure, uh, they can visit clearlawinstitute.com, and there they'll find uh, we, we provide, uh, we have about over 800 online courses on topics on investigations, uh, HR topics, compliance, legal accounting, and management topics. And some of those webinars are webinars that I uh, present on uh, either live or the recorded versions on you know, how to investigate employment misconduct, how to detect deception, and how to write investigative reports. And, uh, and then also I provide you know, training for companies around the world on how to conduct investigations. I do on-site training through that. Great. Well, again, Mike, thanks for uh, taking the time out of your day to speak with me on the Business Life & Coffee podcast. Uh, definitely looking forward to attending your session at Sherm. And uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll see you next week. Okay, that sounds great. All right, great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the show. This has been another episode of Business, Life, and Coffee, the only podcast that simulates the experience of having coffee with a mentor, industry expert, or fellow colleague. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read your comment on an upcoming show. You can find show notes, episodes, and resources for your career or business at businesslifeandcoffee.com. If you have a topic that you want to learn more about but don't have time to grab coffee with an expert, email us at info at businesslifeandcoffee.com and tune in for that topic on a future episode. Also, you can reach me at Twitter at JVPSaid. This is Joy Price signing out, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>